0: Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though imprisoned with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are in the body, are all since you also are in the body. Let mar- marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your, keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord.
1: So uh, we're continuing to uh, read through the book of Hebrews. And uh, we're kind of coming to the end of Hebrews. uh, And what we've seen uh, throughout Hebrews, but time and time again, is the author of Hebrews bringing us back to Jesus. That is that Jesus is better than basically everything. But especially that Jesus is better than... Than everything that came before. And as is the case with so many epistles when you read that you read in the Bible, you get to the end of the epistle and we come to this section that, that seems like uh, overly, overly practical. In fact, if you read any commentaries on the Bible, sometimes you get to these kind of sections and commentators don't know what to do with it because it seems to like go from these heights of theology to to just some very practical things without much transition. And yet, um, we we want these practical things, don't we? Everything Everything really that we need for practical life, as far as the book of Hebrews is concerned, was set before us in the first 12 chapters. That is, Jesus is better than everything that came before him Therefore, what? You can, you can persevere. You can keep following him. There's a constant call in Hebrews to continue following Jesus. And yet, we still want to know what to do with that, don't we? I was talking to a friend this week. We were talking about a, a book that's, that's very popular. I won't tell you the name of this book because, because my buddy was criticizing the book. But it's a very popular, but it's a really, really good book. Um, and he said, the, here's the problem with this book. Everyone cites it when they're talking about mercy ministry. And it never, and it tells you all the things not to do. And it doesn't give you any practical advice. And, and it's, it's a challenge because people cite this particular book always to point out what you're doing wrong in mercy ministry. So there's a problem when we don't have that, that practical, that practical advice, isn't there? So, as jarring as it may be to jump from grand theology, standing before Mount Zion, and then getting down to the nitty-gritty, I think we can all be thankful that there's something at the end of the book that at least says, therefore, this is what you should do. This is what you should do. We, should, we can be thankful for that. What is it? Um, we, we saw last week that we were at the, we were at the foot of Mount Zion at, at uh, two worship services. Basically, we talked about the worship service at Mount Sinai and the worship service at Mount Zion. And we saw that acceptable worship at the foot of Mount Zion before God involves gratitude and reverence and awe. Now, it's very, I think, very easy to apply that when after we hear about gratitude and reverence and awe, we all stand up together and then we sing together together with gratitude and reverence and all. Very easy application. But there's another question what happens when we stop singing. What happens on Monday when you go back to work? What we're going to find is this is what happens on Monday when we go back to work. God has given us Himself in Christ, and now what? What are the implications of of receiving such a great gift as Christ? That He's created us to be a culture, then, that gives. That's what we're going to find. God creates us to be a culture that gives more than it takes. And, it's, and when you have these sort of axiomatic uh, expressions of faithfulness, do this, don't do that, do this, don't do that, how do we link it all together? Well, it's this, that God provides for us, and he wants us to give more than we take. That's basically it. He wants us to give more than we take. Acceptable worship is not just a reorientation of our attitude toward God, but it's a reorientation of our attitude toward other people. When persecution comes, as they were experiencing in the book of Hebrews, we're inclined to want to leave Christ behind. And we don't don't only want to leave God behind, but we also want to leave His people behind. We want to stop having relationships, because those relationships don't benefit us. But it's is what God says. He he, he draws us into a relationship with Himself in such a way that that we don't enter into relationships with others expecting to receive anything else. He expects us to now enter into relationships with others so that we can give. There's a podcast that Mm -hmm. Melanie turned me on to that I've been listening to uh, way too much. It's called Real Dictators. And... It's too good. It's way too good. I, I, unfortunately, I mean, it's talking about some very tragic things. And, and, and one of the things you hear about in this podcast is about communist dictators in the 20th century. And there's, there's a very disturbing element to what happens with these particular communist dictators, especially Stalin and Chairman Mao in China. And that's this. That as soon as they can get people to start acting on the ideology, whether or not they believe it, the people turn on one another very, very quickly. They turn on one another very quickly. There's an ideology that it creates uh, that that people get pressed down in persecution, and their first inclination is to start taking from each other. You see why it's so important that God would show us that when we're pressed, we should give? It's because there's a human inclination when we're pressed down to just want to take. We just want to take. And this is, this is, what, this is how uh, Paul put it when he was saying goodbye to the church in Ephesus and Acts. He says, I've shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. This is, this is something that we've all heard. How do we apply it? Well, uh, the author of Hebrews starts by talking about brotherly love. He says, continue in brotherly love. Continue means, why, why use the word continue? It's because we're inclined not to... Uh, Not to continue, right? So he says continue in brotherly love. What is brotherly love? It's not merely uh, what what, uh, John Lennon sings about in uh, Imagine. Which is sort of a a fluffy kind of general love. But the word brotherly love, it does mean that. In fact, the the, the word Philadelphia, we're, we're, we're familiar with this word because we always hear about the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia whether or not when you go to Philadelphia you actually feel any embrace of love, Unless you're standing in line for a cheesesteak, and, and then I, I don't know, the love comes from the cheesesteak, but not the people who serve it. Uh-huh. But it was a common word, Philadelphia, a common word. And it just meant a, a general love for all mankind. Well, how is this word used in the Bible? It's used in a very specific way, actually. It's not talking about the general love that is for all mankind. In fact, it's talking about love between Christian brothers and sisters it's used in a very specific way in scripture uh, so I want to take a second and, and kind of build a theology of brotherly love throughout scripture and this comes from, this, this really comes from uh, something that John Owen wrote, but I want, to, I want to build it out a little bit because because there's, it's not merely uh, you believe in God therefore you should have brotherly love here's how this works One, all believers have one father. Okay? All believers have one father. Jesus says in Matthew, you you have one father who is in heaven. Matthew 23, 8. Okay? 8 and 9. You have one father who is in heaven. Okay, so one, we have one father. Two, we have one elder brother who is Jesus. One elder brother. For those whom he foreknew, Paul says, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay? We have one father, and we have one elder brother, who is Jesus. Okay? And he's not ashamed, as, as the author of Hebrews says earlier on in Hebrew, to call us brothers and sisters. Okay? In chapter 2, he who uh, he sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers or brothers and sisters. Okay? And there's a quality of love that binds us together. He had to become like his brothers in every respect, the author of Hebrews says earlier on, okay? So, so Jesus identifies with his brothers and sisters in that he became like us. He took on human flesh. Not only that, we're bound together in one spirit. Paul says there's one body and one spirit. Um, and it's the spirit of adoption. Romans chapter 8, you did not receive the spirit of slavery, but you received the spirit of adoption as, as what? As sons. Okay? By whom we cry, Abba, Father. Okay. So this is the theology of brotherly love as we kind of trace it through the New Testament. What does that mean? It means, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that we become joint heirs with God in Christ. What it also means, then, is that we treat one another like brothers and sisters. There is there is in most households, at least for, for our children, we try to emphasize this, and you probably do as well if you have kids, that when one person gets a, a toy for Christmas, like we let them have their own possessions, but most of the time, like you, you basically have to share everything you have. Because that's how a good a, like that that say good, I don't I don't know if it's good or bad, or, but it's certainly happier for us when we don't have to try to try to uh, uh, figure out whose toy belongs to whom and to have the kids fight The You end up just saying, I don't care, you figure it out, all the toys are everyone's, right? Because that's how our kids treat our stuff, right? And this is how it <laughs> is to be a family. Uh, this is how it is to be in a family. Um, we, we, have, we have a, a shared a shared bond that is, everything I have is yours. What does it look like in, in practical Christian situations? It's not really just a matter of belongings, although uh, we'll get to that, it, it does come to that. But this is what Peter says. He says, he says uh, having purified your souls by your obedience to truth, okay, so Christ sanctifies us in his spirit, uh, to the truth for us, sincere, what, brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then a couple verses later, he says this. Put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. First and foremost, Peter is saying that brotherly love has to do with what we say about one another in church. Brothers and sisters, this is so hard to do. You know it and I know. Especially if you've been in church for a while. We're professionals at figuring out how to slander our brothers and sisters in a very, very Christian way, aren't we? We do it all the time. We do it so much that we're not even willing to call one another out. We just sit around and gossip sometimes about this other person that we saw in church doing this other thing. I was reading a quote from, uh, it was from J.R. J., J. last week in his book, Knowing God. And I, and I can't, uh, I, I, I can't uh, quote it verbatim, but what he said is that the reason that we slander brothers and sisters is because of our own spiritual inertia. That we are jealous of what they're doing, and uh, we and so we criticize what they're doing because we're not doing anything. We're not doing anything, and so we criticize what they're doing. How often has it happened in your Christian life that you're sitting around with someone that you trust in church, and you find yourself just being envious? just having malicious words and thoughts in your heart. And then we find very, very Christian ways to say this to other people. I I must, I I, I imagine, I'm not gonna say a specific time, but what I can tell you is that I know I've done, that. even since being here at the church, we're fairly new at the church, we haven't even been here a year. And I've already spent time with brothers and sisters criticizing other people in this church. And we all do it in very subtle ways. So Peter says, if we're going to have brotherly love, then it starts with the words that you say to one another and about one another. But that's not it. That's not only. There's more to it than that. And in fact, early on in the Christian church, uh, 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 other, other people in society even recognized that there was something different. Not only about how Christians spoke about one another, but also about how they treated one another. This is what Lucian of of Samosata, he was a commentator, okay, a satirist, not a Christian, okay, in the second century. He says, moreover, their original lawgiver persuaded them that they should be like brothers to one another. Therefore, they despised all things equally and viewed them as common property, accepting such teachings by tradition and without any precise belief. As far as he could tell, Christians were, I mean, what, what would we call this? If we were saw this for Christians, we'd be like, these guys are a bunch of commies who just sit around and they share all their stuff. So weird. And he thought it was so weird that these Christians would sit around and share all their stuff. Just because, just because the lawgiver told them to do that, just because Jesus said, share your stuff. He thought it was weird that they would share their stuff. But this is the thing, it's one thing to say things, it's one thing to talk about how we love one another and how we're not gonna slander one another, how we don't envy one another. It's another thing entirely to to do it, to actually share our stuff, to show one another brotherly love. I was gonna go back to the podcast, World Dictators, but I think I'll leave it for now. <laughs> There's a funny thing that, that the author of Hebrews does next in this passage. And that is this. We, we go from brotherly love to strangerly love, if I can call it that. The word stranger love is not in the passage because stranger love I think would just it just sounds stranger love just sounds really sketchy and wrong, right? But the word hospitality is the same, it's 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 the same root on the one hand, we have Philadelphia, brotherly love, And on the other hand, we have Philazenia, Phila, Phila stranger love. So, so the other Peter says, if you want to see how, how persevering in the gospel looks, you have to have love for those within the church. But also have love for strangers. Have love for strangers. Why? Because at because this time... As you see when you're reading, uh, uh, and especially in the epistles, there are itinerant preachers, and the preachers roam around from place to place, and they need a place to stay. They need a place to stay. Um, and so, there's, there's a thing that you can do when there are strangers about, and it's called It's called hospitality. It's called hospitality. Uh, this is what this is what Paul says in Romans twelve. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show them hospitality. John Stott said hospitality was especially important because inns were few and far between, and those that existed were often unsafe or unsavory places. It was essential, therefore, for Christian people to open their homes to travelers, and in particular for church leaders to do so. In fact, Paul did not just urge the Romans to practice hospitality, but to pursue it. And then, uh, and then Origin, a church father from many centuries ago commented, we're, we're not just to receive the stranger when he comes to us, but actually to inquire after and look carefully for strangers, to pursue them and search them out everywhere, lest perchance somewhere they may sit in the streets or lie without a roof over their heads. What does this mean for us? It, it really means, brothers and sisters, within the church that Christians should never be without a roof over and I mean that very sincerely. That we should find homeless people in church. And it's something that's really difficult for us to understand, because we actually don't enjoy inviting people into our homes, do we? Some, there's some people who are very, very good at it, and others, we, we just don't want people up in our stuff, do we? And yet, if you are, this is, a, this is one, kind of one of those funny things, I was talking to a friend this week, I have to travel up to Seattle in July, and, um, and he, I'm talking, I I'm speaking to a friend who's a pastor up there, and he said to me, uh, well, do you want me to try to find someone that you can stay with while you're here, or do you want to just stay in a hotel? And I can tell you my first thought is, I want to just stay in a hotel because I don't want to be around other people. Maybe you're that way. But my second thought was this, I love my friend, but he's not a great church. If someone's coming to town to visit, it should not be that hard to find a place for them to stay. And yet, I mean, if if you've ever worked in uh, deactive ministry, or if you've ever been in ministry at a church, and you see something come up that someone needs a place to stay, you know actually how hard it is to find a place for people to stay. Because our extra bedroom is not for people to stay in. It's my office. Our extra bedroom is for crafting. Our extra bedroom is where we store all the extra stuff we have. So we don't really want people to come stay with us, because it means we'll have to move our stuff out of the way so they can stay with us. And yet, scripture, Scripture is saying, this is not a Christian attitude to have. This is really not how believers ought to act toward one another. And then then something weird happens in this passage that um, I'm gonna preach through quickly because because it's weird enough. And that is uh, that that, that the author says, we should show hospitality. Why? Mm, Because thereby some have entertained angels unaware, underwears. (laughs) We should show hospitality. Why? And then it feels like the author tries to scare us a little bit because you might be entertaining angels. And then you might think of the Michael W. Smith song from the 80s or the Newt Boy song from the 90s. And we think about entertaining angels. It's not there to scare us. There's there's really a specific thing uh, that this is referencing. And if if you read back in Genesis 18, there's this instance where the Lord appears to Abraham. And there's no indication that Abraham actually knows who's appearing to him. At first, um, he, he lifted up his eyes. This is Abraham, and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the earth, and he said, "O oh Lord." And that's not the that's not the uh, that's not Yahweh, the divine name of Lord. It's, it's really just a very general word, Lord. Like a, a, a sir or something like that. If I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. So, and what do you find, what does Abraham sort of find out later on? That, that he's not just entertaining some random people who are walking around. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you might do the same thing. I don't actually think it's a very healthy thing to assume that every stranger who comes through the door is, uh, is an angel. But look, you, you never know who you might be entertaining. And this is what this is what Jesus hits at when he, when he talks in Matthew 25. I mean, he talks about separating the sheep from the goats. When the Son of Man comes, he's gonna, he's gonna separate his people. Some will be his people, some will not be his people. Who are the ones who are going to be his people? He will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these brothers you did to me. Even if it's not an angel, brothers and sisters, Jesus is saying, God is watching what we're doing. He's watching what we're doing to see if our hearts have actually been transformed by the gospel. And so you never know who you could be serving. You never know who you could be serving. There's a great irony to churches, you you, you may drive around, there's a, um, if Christ Church has ever used this as a slogan, then I'll trust you'll forgive me. But you you can go to many churches and see their slogan is basically love God and love people. They take the commandments of Jesus and they make it their slogan. It's very good, very helpful thing to think about how are we gonna structure our way of life at church? We're gonna love God, we're gonna love people. But how ironic is it when you go into one of those churches for whom this is a very simple catchphrase, and you feel like a total alien. It's completely wrong. Because if you're a stranger, the writer of Hebrews said you should be welcomed. Well, there's more to it than that. He also, he also talks about those who are in prison and those who are mistreated. In prison and those who are mistreated. Specifically, you think about Christians who are actually being arrested back then. You read about it in the book of Acts, this was happening early on in the church. Christians get arrested for being Christians, basically. And so, the author of Hebrews says that we're to remember them. How do we remember them? This is not so easy for us today, because at least in our culture, Christians don't get arrested for their faith. And so, and so we, we kind of think maybe this just doesn't apply to us. This is is how that same commentator, Lucian, noted um, what Christians were doing. I won't read the quote. Um, Lucian said he noticed that when Christians were with one another in prison, they would share cells with their fellow Christians and bring them meals. And you, and you, you wonder why he thought it was so weird that Christians would share things, because the Christians would actually, in the second century, go visit one another in prison and as a matter of solidarity with their brothers and sisters, sleep in prison with them. Sleep in prison with them. We, we, can't, we can't even do that today if we wanted to, could we? And most of us are saying, thankfully we cannot do that today if we wanted to. Because no one wants to spend the night in prison. Prison's very different today. But if, you, if, you've ever, if you've ever been involved with any prison ministry, you find that prison is so difficult for Christians. Especially for those who are converted in prison. It's not easy. I remember speaking with one man who came out of prison, and I was sharing the gospel with him once, and he said, "When I was, I, I looked at all his tattoos on his arms. I said, hey, tell me about all your ink. He said, well, these ones, and it was many, many of his tattoos. He said, these are all from the gang I had to join. I was like, you had to join? And he said, you can't survive without joining a gang. If you go to prison, the only way to get by is if you join a gang. I found this very surprising. There's a man I I, I correspond with today who constantly, every letter that he writes is is that he needs encouragement because it's so difficult to be in prison as a Christian. Prison's a very difficult place to be. I will, right now... But just as a way of brief application, commend to you a ministry that the PCA has um, called Metanoia. You know, I don't know, has has they we support Metanoia? Yeah. So has Mark come and spoken here before? Paul Miller. It's a great ministry, um, and, and it's very simple. I, I would encourage you to get involved with it because it's something that can be so simple and so encouraging. And, and all it is is this: there are Christians in prison who want to go in the Lord, and they, they really have no great teaching to be able to do that. So they get sent little booklets that kind of walk them through just biblical theology. Then you'll get sent the booklet, you grade it, you can write them an encouraging letter and send it back. It's such a simple thing that takes almost no time, can be so encouraging for those who are in prison. There's another ministry that, that um, that's a little broader than that, that we found very helpful. This is, uh, this is the World Watch List, published by Open Doors USA. You may have heard of this as well. This is really just, this is last year's uh, version, but really it's just a story of the top, how they rank it, the top 50 persecuted churches in the world. And if you read in this book, or go on the Open Doors USA website, what you'll find is that Christians in the world are being arrested for christians still and that we may not be able to have solidarity with them today by joining them in prison but what we can do is pray for them and god listens to our prayers and provides comfort for them and it helps to raise the awareness of what happens just by praying about these things so i wanted to to talk about at least those two ministries by way of application um, there, there's 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 something that we do when it comes to hospitality, and when it comes to our stuff, and I find myself doing this, and you may want to, you you may find yourself doing this as well, because we kind of live on the edge of San Antonio, where you kind of start looking at the property that is around you, and and and, and if you're like Melanie, <laughs> then you've heard your husband talk about how you just want to get a cabin somewhere and not having neighbors how great it would be to live in the middle of nowhere with no neighbors. I see some, I see some dudes out here like, yeah. <laughs> like, doesn't that sound great? What, hap- what happens when you're living in a cabin in the middle of nowhere with no neighbors and you see someone walking up to your house? You go get a shotgun, <laughs> right? That's what we think, someone's coming, I better protect my stuff. Or my family, too. But, you know, I want to make sure they don't steal my stuff. I, I, this, this passage just really confronts that part of me that wants to live in the middle of nowhere with no neighbors. Because it's actually not a very Christian way to live. Because you can't show hospitality if there's no one around. You can't show hospitality if there's no one around. It, this goes beyond inviting people over for dinner. It's, it's that, definitely. When, so often we think of hospitality, we think about inviting people over for dinner. Of course, it's at least that. But you see, it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. Let's move on. Um, because there's a transition that takes place um, from, from just talking about brotherly love to really confronting our sin. And the author uh, moves on to talk about two things in particular. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage be undefiled. And then further on, keep your life free from the love of life. I read these verses and I, and I wonder what possible link they have to just brotherly love. But here's what we get out of the Christian life. That, mer- that, that the Christian life is not just about <coughs> taking. It's, it's a matter of giving. And when we talk about sex in our culture and marital infidelity, what we are talking about is only taking for ourselves. It sounds like these verses were written specifically even to address, I mean, you read these verses about sex and money, and you think, these were written for America today, right? And yet, this is just humanity. This is just humanity. There's a long tradition. Humanity has a long tradition of bad sexual ethics, actually. It goes back to, I mean, if you read in the Old Testament, what do you hear about it? temple prostitutes. Temple prostitutes, whole prostitution.
0: That is this. If we
1: have sex in the right places, we can influence what God does. That's what it was. That's what it was. What does it become after that? You see God blessing you because you have sex in the right places, then you start to realize that you can just have sex for the sake of your pleasure. You don't have to have the pretense of religion. And that's what ends up happening in, in these cultures over time. There's a, there's a word called hetere, it's not in this passage. I was reading about it from uh, Demosthenes. He's a, he's a uh, third century, B.C. philosopher. And the hetere were Athenian, uh, non-Athenian women in that society. Therefore they had no rights, okay? So women in Athens whose parents were not born in Athens and then, therefore, they had no rights as citizens. And so they did what they had to for work. They were taken as slaves and mistresses. And it wasn't uncommon in any way. This isn't just, a, this isn't just some sort of thing that happened that no one talked about. Demosthenes says that the hetere we have for our pleasure, the concubines for the daily care of our bodies, and our wives, so that we can have legitimate children and a true guardian of the house. Three classes of women for Demosthenes. Sexual slaves, other women who were in the house just to take care of you, and then other ones who could bear you legitimate children. That, that's, We don't have anything that compares to that today, which we could be thankful for. But we talk about how culture is doing this, like. We don't have that today. But what I'm saying is that humanity has a long history of, of just bad sexual ethics. So let me trace the trajectory. We direct our attention away from God, from God's provision, and, and we make people think that they can manipulate forces in nature. That's what happened early on. Have sex in the right places so that God will bless you. And then what? You, you monetize that manipulation. That is, you have to pay me money as a cult prostitute, as a way of exploitation, and then pursue that pleasure for the, for the sake of pleasure itself. And then what happens? Those who are powerful enough to pay for the pleasure just end up taking it from those who are not powerful enough. And then unrestrained sex exhibits in a society a lack of trust in God. It gives way to a culture that's more interested in satisfying personal pleasure than providing those who are in need. Does this sound like something that is so familiar to us today, that we're more interested, as a society, in just providing for our personal pleasure and not taking care of others? And what the author is saying is actually, when we're talking about brotherly love, it starts in your house. It starts in your marriage bed, even. That's where brotherly love starts. It says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. Because because sex outside of marriage speaks to something other than who you are. It profanes what God has made holy. And those who defile the marriage bed can expect some kind of judgment. It says God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God will judge the sexually immoral, that is, those who have sex outside of marriage, and the adulterous, that is, those who are married and then have sex outside of marriage as well. It serves as a warning. And I think it should serve as a warning for all of us because in, a, in what we we may not be, in our minds, as bad as some past cultures, but we have a sexualized culture, don't we? And it should serve as a warning for when we allow ourselves those secret, those secret thoughts and those secret sexual sins, and we say, "I guess it's a victimless crime," we justify those things as victimless crimes. And, and brothers and sisters, the passage is actually saying the person who persists in that and allows themselves in that. You're not a believer. You're not a believer if you persist in that kind of sin. God will judge you for that sin. And the implication is is not that God will judge you well. I don't don't mean to say that if you've fallen into any sort of sexual sin, or even if you're in that sin today, that you, you are not a Christian. But what I am saying is that we love to hold on to those things and entertain them as if they're not all that bad. And the author of Hebrews is saying, this is insidious. This is killing your soul. So leave it behind. Those those things are not characteristic of someone who perseveres in the gospel. It's not characteristic of someone who perseveres in the gospel. So it, it serves as a warning. And then there's a final warning as well. There's a there's a, I mentioned, I mentioned the band uh, Newsboys earlier. Did you guys listen to this band in the 90s? Probably still today maybe even. <laughs> there, was a, there was a lead singer of the band Newsboys, his name is John James, and he left the band in the early 90s. Newsboys got very, very big. They Like, yes, it was cheesy Christian rock, but they got big enough to be able to play stadiums. And when I was 16, like, I was like, yeah, I can like pump my fist to this at least a little bit. At least on, the, on one album, and then after that, they just got more too popular. Uh The singer for this band, one of the lead singers for this band left the band in the, in the mid-90s because he had become an alcoholic, a cocaine addict, and because he was cheating on his wife. Now, if you've heard any stories about Christian contemporary music, it's not surprising to you, and we know that that stuff happens. But with, because with an increase of wealth and fame comes what? A lot of the same things that you, that you always hear. This is what John James said as he reflects back on that time. I remember when it started, I'd come home off the road sometimes and find my wife crying. I tolerated it for a little while. I remember one day I came home and I was just so fed up. She was weeping. And I'm like, woman, be quiet, what's your problem? We've gained the whole world. Your only stress in life is how many pairs of shoes should I buy today? We've gained everything. But my wife can see something much bigger than the success, the fame, the money, the position, the career, she saw our marriage starting to erode and fall apart. I tell that story by, means of, by, by way of transition that he had fallen into, and it's not mentioned in that quote, he had fallen into sexual sin. But, but, but with the, one of the ways that he fell into that sexual sin was because there was an increase, parallel increase, with his money, the money that was in his pocket. And so the author of Hebrews relates these two things together and says we have to be free also from love of money. We're familiar with the verse that Paul mentions uh, that that, uh, Paul says to Timothy, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not all evil, but all kinds of evil. That is this. When we start to feel the same way about things, that we feel about people, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. We start trusting that if we just have enough stuff, we're going to be okay. How common is it in humanity? Francis Xavier was a, was a, a Catholic priest and uh, Jesuit in the 16th century. He said this. He said, I've, I've heard thousands of confessions, but never one of covetousness. I've heard thousands of confessions, but never one of covetousness. And so the author of Hebrews says, be content with what you have. What is, what is written in the fabric of our endless purchase? It's an inherent sense that we need more. That if we don't have certain things, that we may just fall apart completely. When it comes to our sexual lives, we treat it that way. I just need more of that, otherwise I cannot be happy. But we also do it with our stuff. I need more stuff, otherwise I can't be happy. And yet our affections should be rightly directed from God. He gives to us Christ. We love others so that we can all turn our affections back to God. Instead, the way it so often works is that God loves us in Christ. We see certain blessings in life, and then we fall in love with the blessings that He gives us. And we don't direct our attention back toward Christ. How much is too much? How much is too much? There's a very uncomfortable scripture that usually gets preached in a certain way. We're familiar with this passage. Jesus says, there's a rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And he went away sorrowful for he had possessions. Let me tell you how this passage usually gets preached, how I would preach this passage if I were here today. I would tell you that you don't need to go sell all your possessions. That's how it always gets preached. Listen to these words that Jesus says, but listen, this only applies to you if you love your stuff, so don't go sell all your possessions. You don't have to do that. I've never heard a single sermon that ends with sell all your stuff and follow Jesus. I I won't preach that one today. But I'm saying that because when I was preparing this particular sermon, these words from Christ bothered me a lot. Because we usually, we usually have to build a whole philosophy around how the Bible allows for private ownership, and we're not communists, we don't have everything in common, and so it's okay to own your stuff. And, and listen, I, I, I agree with that. But we think that, 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 that the way around it is by just to say, I can hoard all these things, I can buy all the things, I can satisfy every desire that I have, as long as I don't love it as long as I don't love them. And I don't think that's the thrust of these passages in Scripture. If the author of Hebrews starts by saying, you need to show brotherly love to one another by what giving instead of taking, then it, when it comes to our stuff and being content with what we have, it's not a matter of looking at what we have Saying, how can I be content with what I have? And then shifting all of a sudden and saying, God, how can I keep these things and get more of these things and still follow you?" And yet that's, that's what we so often do. How do you keep from being kindness? The answer's in the passage. You have to start by giving things away. You start by giving things away. I'm not saying that you should go home and give things away if you're going to talk to your wife or your husband first before you give things away. But I am saying that this is one of the antidotes. Thomas Watson, Watson uh, curates said there's no better antidote against covenant that which is that which is another's than being content with that which is our own. This is a whole change of heart. That we have a culture in church that gives more than it takes. With our stuff, with people, all of those things. And we have a culture that gives more than it takes. And so I'll conclude with this, that it starts with a dialogue that you have with God in your prayers. This is where it starts. It's a dialogue with God in your prayers. And let me tell you something, God is the first one to speak to you here. And this is what he says. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So go to your prayers and listen to this dialogue and let God speak first. I will never leave you or forsake you. That is what he has said to his church from the time that he was rescuing them from slavery in Egypt.